Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Dr. Stuart Ritchie. He's a psychologist and science communicator known for his research in human intelligence and an author. The influence of our genes on the outcomes we get in life has been long established and replicated in science. However, the public response to this has been very unhappy, making behavioral genetics one of the most heated areas of research there is. Expect to learn why some people dislike behavioral genetics so much, what happened with the recent SSRI rug pull, whether emotional intelligence is an actual thing, how to be skeptical without becoming nihilistic, which psychological phenomenon were debunked during the replication crisis, and much more. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Surfshark VPN. Protect your browsing online and get access to the entire world's Netflix library for less than the price of a cup of coffee per month. It takes two minutes to set up. You just download the app, press one button, and you will be transported from wherever you are to a secure VPN server. It means that you can move your territory location and have access to everything that America's got on Netflix, which is loads more Marvel series and movies than you've got at home. And if you're in your America, you can check out what we've got going on over here in the U.S. UK, perhaps some Peaky Blinders earlier than you'll have access to it in your country. Also, it protects your browsing. It stops websites and hackers from tracking your data and selling it to advertising companies. And it does all of this across unlimited devices, your laptop, your iPad, your phone, even your smart TV. And one membership works across all of those. Also, there's an 83% discount, three months free, and a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it and try it for 29 days. And if you do not like it, they will give you your money back. Head to surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom. That's surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by Crafted London. They are the number one men's jewellery brand on the planet, literally the biggest, over half a million happy customers worldwide. They have necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings in custom designs, gold and silver, and they're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, gym-proof, and come with a lifetime guarantee. So if you break it for any reason at all, if it snaps on you, you will get a new one no matter how long you've had it. That is how confident they are in the quality of their products. The thing that I like the most is that the pieces are really versatile. I can wear them with formal wear. I can wear them if I'm going on a night out or just casually through the day. And they are really, really high quality. Also, they ship internationally and you can get 15% off everything that they make. Go to bit.ly slash cdwisdom and the code MW15 will get you 15% off everything site-wide. That's bit.ly slash letter C, letter D, wisdom and MW15 at checkout. And in final news, this episode is brought to you by Verso. Verso is a company dedicated to translating scientific breakthroughs into products that hold the potential to increase your longevity. You may have heard my interview with Dr. David Sinclair and other leading scientists studying longevity. And although sleep, diet, and training are the most important parts, there are certain elements of aging that may benefit from a little extra supplemental help. Cellbeing by Verso is a nicotinamide mononucleotide or NMN-based supplement. NMN is a precursor to NAD and low levels of NAD are associated with age-related diseases. Cellbeing has everything put into one capsule, resveratrol, NMN, NAD, and TMG all blended together in an optimal dose. You don't need to work out how much you need to take and if it is of the highest quality because Verso publishes third-party testing for every batch that they produce to guarantee that you are getting what you pay for. If you want to get started with a longevity supplement regime, this is a great place to begin. 
Go to ver.so slash modernwisdom and use the coupon code MW15 at checkout to save 15% on your order. That's ver.so slash modernwisdom and MW15 at checkout. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Stuart Ritchie. Stuart Ritchie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Given your current academic background at the moment, can you explain to people why you think it is that behavioral genetics has so much distaste, distrust, dislike generally? There's a lot of different reasons. I think uh, the main reason is some kind of a, a misconception about what it actually means to say that behavioral traits are related to genetics. So uh, I think when people hear that, especially when the trait itself is controversial, like you can get into a whole debate about intelligence or personality without even mentioning genetics. You know, people people get upset by just you know mentioning those those traits. But when you say they're linked to genetics, people make lots of assumptions. People think they know your politics. They think they know like what you what you're trying to say, what you're trying to like slip under the you know uh, under people's uh, under under the radar, under people's notice. Um, and those assumptions are things like, well, if it's related to genetics, it must be completely unchangeable. Uh, if it's unchangeable, then we don't need to do anything about our political situation. Uh, uh, and we don't need to, you know, help people out. Uh, and people are just stuck like a tram on a tram line. They can't they can't turn off or change or, or anything like that. And uh, uh, you, if, if you're interested in behavior genetics, you must be using it to justify our current political situation. So I think I think that, that like that's one of the major assumptions, like immutability, the the, the fear of immutability, um, uh, uh, and that's of course not what behavior genetics says at all. Behavior genetics is about trying to understand you know how things are right now, not necessarily how things might be if we change things in the future, um, uh, uh, or indeed the, if they may have been different in in, in the past. We have. Lots of interesting studies of how, like, the genetic contribution to things uh, uh, differs across different times and different places and different political regimes. Even there's some interesting research on communist regimes and how that might have affected the uh, uh, the, the the heritability of traits. We can how we can so? Talk. Yeah, T- tell us about that. Well, there's some research uh, in uh, Estonia, which obviously used to be uh, a communist uh, uh, country, and um, uh, so yeah, this is a this is a research using a polygenic score which uh, your viewers may be familiar with from uh, hearing your interview with Robert Plowman, uh, one, of my, one of my colleagues uh, here at King's College London. Um, uh, and so the idea is that you look at the genetic contribution to various traits and educational attainment being the, being the main one, um, before and after communism in Estonia. So that was, that was it's just this incredibly cool paper that, that was done. Um, would be nice if it was replicated and stuff, but this is, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting. Uh, uh, you need more communist regimes to come well, and yeah. go in order for that to happen. It's exactly. going to be difficult. Well, you need a few. You need. You certainly. You need to do that same study in lots of other like Warsaw Pact countries, uh, which are now no longer communism. So the idea is that in people who were born uh, after uh, communism was gone. Genetics explains more of the variation in uh, people's educational attainment, for instance. So like and the, the idea is like the broad interpretation or one interpretation you can draw from that 
is that a freer political system, one that doesn't, you know, uh, oppress people in the same way that communism does, um, allows them to kind of uh, uh, reach their genetic potential is one is one way you might want to put it um, uh, more effectively than one which kind of where the environment really was kind of suppressing people's ability to kind of be who they who they really were. So that's that's one interesting uh, uh, thing. But that but, you know, in, in just saying that you can see how the environment makes a difference to how genetics operate. Uh, and that's, you know, research that's done by, you know, behavior geneticists who are not, you know, criticizing polygenic scores. They're saying, look, we can use polygenic scores to illustrate interesting things about our society and how society changes and so on. So, so I think it's a real misconception to say that, um, to say that, uh, uh, you know, genetics means that we're immutable in, 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 in some way. I mean, the classic thing people talk about the, the kind of, um, the, the kind of almost boring cliched uh, thing that people talk about is, is glasses, right? Is, is, is um, uh, uh, eyesight is really heritable. So myopia, short sightedness, really, really heritable, um, uh, runs in families, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, we can, we can cure it instantly or, or effectively cure it instantly by just like putting on a pair of glasses at the right prescription. So things in the environment can uh, um, completely alter the way that genetics has, has its effect. Now, it's a slight cop out to say that because we don't have the environmental equivalent of glasses for uh, other traits like personality. Like we don't know the stuff that will massively instantly change your personality. Um, we don't know the things that will massively instantly change your intelligence or your educational attainment and all that yet. Maybe we will at some point in the future, but we don't have that right now. Um, maybe it's a good thing that we don't know ways to like massively alter people's personalities using the environment because, of course, that might be used by uh, somewhat nefarious uh, political regimes or cults or whatever else. I mean, cults are already pretty good at like controlling people's behavior and so on. And if they had ways of uh, changing people's personalities more effectively, then that might be uh, rather scary. So, um, uh, yeah, but that's but that's you know one example that's very often used. Um, another one is height. Like height is really heritable. We know that tall parents tend to have tall kids. Uh, shorter parents tend to have shorter kids on average. So it goes. And yet, if you don't feed a kid while they're growing up. Uh, they'll be stunted. People in North Korea are like six inches shorter than people in, or four inches, whatever, is shorter than people in South Korea because of all the malnutrition. No one's criticizing the fact that behavioral genetics suggests that that's the mechanism by which tall parents have tall kids, right? Well, not behavioral genetics, I guess, but just heritability generally, right? The yeah. height is heritable. What is it about other elements that causes people a shoe size or eye color? Yeah. What, what is it about that that causes it to be such a different uh, ballpark? Well, you've put your finger on the, the, the thing here, which is the double standard, which is people are very, very happy to talk about, um, uh, you know, genetic influences on stuff like height or eye color and, and things like that that don't have a political valence. But as soon as it, you know, you use those exact same methods, and that's the important thing, like you use the same method, studying twins, studying families, studying molecular you know, DNA differences between people. You use those exact same traits to study stuff like intelligence, personality, whatever, and people flip out. And that's, um, uh, I think, a weird double standard. I mean, what, what, would, what, would one of the, what would one of them say in response to that? They would say, well, those traits are a lot more complicated. They're, they're, they're socially influenced. Things like educational attainment is influenced by all sorts of stuff. The quality of the school you went to, um, uh, uh, the socioeconomic situation that you find yourself growing up in. Just to jump in there, yeah. didn't Plowman find that when you uh, equate for everything else, 
schools on their own have less than 5% of an impact on someone's educational outcomes. That's the, yeah, he used the Ofsted ratings of, yes. of, of schools to show that. Yeah, I think I think probably in the UK that's probably true. I think in other countries that might that might differ slightly. Like I think in countries where the schools really, really dramatically mm. differ, uh, uh, we, we've done a pretty good job of like equalizing because of things like Ofsted inspections. Of, you know, fairly, the American uh, people that are listening, Ofsted is a external accreditation board that comes in and makes sure that the school's doing everything right and that the students are getting the appropriate and we also have a much more uh, homogenous teaching uh, curriculum right everybody across the entire maybe uk but certainly england has one set of exams at this age at this age at this age unless you're in some weird like international business schooly type thing Pretty much everybody has the same stuff, so you have this. It is a bit different in it is a bit different in Scotland, where I'm from. They have the in Scotland they have the curriculum for excellence, which I believe is not all that excellent. Um, uh, but but anyway, yeah, you're quite right. So so uh, yeah, what what Robert did in that study was found that once you control for the selection into uh, uh, into schools, so you know, private schools, for instance, and. Uh, Sorry, yeah. There's, there's two different. There's two different. There's, there's the there's the private school versus versus state school one, and there's the Ofsted ratings one. And in both cases, the quality of the school uh, doesn't make that 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 much of a difference. But I think um, what someone might say in response to my argument is that there's a lot of you know I'm just using school quality as one as one potential thing. But like there's a lot of other stuff that goes into that. Um, uh, uh, something like intelligence compared to something that goes into height. I'm not entirely sure about that because there's loads of interesting biological stuff going on with, you know, uh, uh, nutritional intakes and uh, all the sort of stuff that happens when you're when you're uh, uh, trying to understand height. And almost inevitably, these traits that we think are really straightforward when we do more in-depth genetic analyses of them, even something like eye color, it becomes a much more complex story as to exactly how it's going on. Um, there were some papers recently on eye color that they were basically saying like the story is much more complicated than we than we, than we thought. Um, but that's also the case for things like intelligence, education, personality, all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, but, but I think there's this kind of allergy to even talking about stuff like education as if it could be... Um, studied in a kind of genetic sense or even among among some people like they think that it can't even be studied in a psychological sense as well like it's a purely social thing like it's ridiculous to try and quantify it and there's a lot of you know opposition to um uh, quantification and and using standardized tests and all that kind of stuff um uh in in these kind of contexts so yeah i think people have this have this strange double standard when it comes to 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 that and also there's a double standard in the opposite direction which is they're very happy to um, when someone says, you know, uh, this particular, you know, intervention uh, uh, in the environment, whether it's teachers doing something different or parents doing something different or the government doing something different, you know, this had a big effect on people's uh, um, on 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 uh, kids' educational attainment, for instance. Using those same kind of methods, um, uh, you could you could look at you know genetic influences too, like polygenic scores using the same kinds of statistics and the same kind of stuff, and yet people people are not happy to take the same draw the same conclusions there. So there's double standards everywhere. People are just kind of uh, uh, really they, they feel this real aversion to uh, genetic explanations. What, what so tell me about where this is coming from because it seems like here's my here's the bro science explanation right that. Coming into talking about behavioral genetics, group differences and individual differences got lumped in together. Group differences got used by people that have some pretty nasty ideas about better and worse types of individuals. And that has 
cause downstream for behavioral genetics to kind of be lumped in with quasi-racist ideas. That's one reason. Another reason is we live in a meritocracy. And in a meritocracy, if you are your successes and you own your failures, someone that is told that you have a predisposition toward being more successful ahead of arriving into the world, given that success and your achievements in life are one of the fundamental things that you take your status and your well-being and your sense of everything from, that also feels very unfair. You know, in a world that's trying to give people equality of opportunity, realizing that people start, like literally start the race at very, very varying levels is kind of a hard thing to bring in here. What do you want us to do? Do you want us to try and normalize for genetic predisposition before people get to school? That, that doesn't seem very fair. Okay, what happens if we completely flatten the environment so that everyone gets the same? Okay, so what you're saying then is that the only differences in outcome are going to be exclusively genetic. Well, God, that yeah. doesn't feel very fair either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and the, the, the funny thing is that I think people, you know, this is something which the average person understands very, very well. There's that paper that showed that, you know, uh, uh, the people who get who are, who are the most accurate at predicting uh, the heritability of different traits, so like how heritable things are, obesity, height, intelligence, whatever, um, the people who are most accurate at, at, at saying, yeah, genetics are probably involved in that, are mothers with more than one child, right? So there's this idea that if you've got one child, then, you know, that's interesting. But if you've got another one, you can say, oh, right, I'm not parenting this kid particularly differently. I'm not doing anything massively different. And yet this child is totally different. And to be honest, if you know anyone who, if you know brothers or sisters or, you know, whatever, siblings of any of any kind, like, you know that they, they differ dramatically in their personality. And it's probably not that they were like, expressly parented in a particularly different way there are genetics that influence that so we all we all realize that some some kids are you know starting school with slightly higher aptitude for you know sitting down and concentrating and and some are some are not but the thing is the mistake is is to is to assume that there's only one political outcome from that there's only one political interpretation of that because the kind of more liberal interpretation of that is well if people start off in different things then you have to think in terms of john rawls like the um the veil of ignorance and this is what Paige harden talks about in her book the veil of ignorance which is you know if you didn't know what traits you were going to have uh, uh you could be any you could be entered into the genetic lottery as, as Paige puts it and uh and, and and start your life as one of many people how should we set up the world such that you're you know uh, that the world is as fair as, as 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 it possibly could be to whatever you might be like, um, and so that implies a lot of leveling off. That implies a lot of you know uh, extra resources for kids who are struggling, uh, making sure that things are, are as equal as possible, making sure that opportunities are 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 given to kids who maybe wouldn't otherwise get them. So you could draw a very you know progressive liberal conclusion from from that, just as much as you could draw the conclusion of. Oh well, we shouldn't bother helping people because you know uh, genetics is, is is having an effect. Yeah, it does seem like a an incredibly illiberal way to view the situation. That that evidence over there that could assist us in helping people to get themselves to the kind of life and the kind of world that they want to have, we we, we shouldn't know about that. Well, hang on, it, whether you decide to believe in it or not doesn't mitigate the impact of it on those people's lives. Yeah. And I think I had a great conversation with Paige and I appreciated the fact that she engaged with, given that she's very from the left, an incredibly difficult circle to square, right? It is very hard to work out how you combine 
left-leaning politics with a, a deep understanding of behavioral genetics and the impact that they seem to have on people's outcomes in life. Yeah, totally. And, and, and uh, that's, you know, one, one, you know, we must admit as behavior geneticists that one reason that people have drawn the kind of more right-leaning conclusion and, are, and fear the right-leaning conclusion is that there are lots of figures in history who, who have drawn that conclusion, right? But if you go right to the very start of when people were kind of inventing intelligence tests and, and, and so on, um, this was very much the idea. So, so uh, Godfrey Thompson, who was this kind of very well-known intelligence researcher at the start of the 20th century at, at University of Edinburgh. There's a um, there's a, a, a building named after him in the University of Edinburgh Education School, where, by the way, they probably don't teach that much about like IQ and uh, and so on anymore. But it's somewhat ironic that it's in it's in a building named after him. But fair enough. Um, uh, he was of the opinion that, and he didn't do so much genetic stuff, but um, he was of the opinion that you know intelligence differences that that, that kids have imply that we should spend exactly the same on every single child so so like um you know no matter whether they're struggling or doing really well every single child should get the same amount of resources from 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 the state he wanted things to be as equal as possible and yet he was one of the pioneering intelligence researchers and made major contributions to our understanding of of uh, of, of exactly what intelligence is and what the g factor is the general factor of intelligence all this kind of stuff um and and you know the the the, the general you know, uh, influence that he and other people around him at the time had on the education system was that, you know, there are all these people out there who um, uh, are, you know, would not otherwise be noticed by the good schools. Because, of course, at that point, getting into a good school meant knowing people, um, your parents being rich and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so we should try and have an objective way of doing that. And th that's why they influenced the Butler Education Act in the 1940s. And, and we, that's how we got the grammar school system that we had in the UK for a long time. Now, the grammar school system turned out to be not particularly effective because the people who went to grammar school had a great time, but the people who didn't pass the 11 plus test, which was the, the test that you, the IQ test that you did, um, ended up in secondary moderns, which were very, very poorly resourced. Um, and there's all these like hellish stories of, you know, the latter half of the 20th century, the people went to secondary moderns and had a horrible time. And, and I can totally understand these crumbling buildings and all this kind of stuff. Um, but, but that was not the intention. Like the intention of the psychologist who set this up was a kind of, was a kind of noble one, which was that, you know, we, we were going to try and find smart kids from poor backgrounds and give them, uh, a, you know, uh, an academic curriculum that was, that is appropriate to them, not, not give them more resources or anything, just give them an academic curriculum that includes stuff that's more appropriate to them and give uh, uh, an academic curriculum to people who are, are you know, are, are not as academically inclined. So um, that was the original in intention. Um, you know, subsequent to that, there came lots of people who did in fact believe in, you know, eugenic theories and 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 a lot of all the, the, the stuff that we now hear IQ tests, you know, associated with. But, you know, the original IQ tests were, you know, uh, uh, made for noble reasons. The very, very, very first one, Alfred Binet in the 1910s, uh, was invented to help kids who were struggling in school. Uh, you know, kids who maybe um, uh, had particular, you know, what we would now call, you know, special educational needs, um, was invented to have an objective way of diagnosing them and and, and giving them extra uh, attention and help. So, like the the kind of um, if you believe this stuff, therefore you must believe in like 
predestination and immutability of traits and you must be you know have these 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 right wing uh, views on things it's just completely it's, it's ahistorical and it's uh, and it doesn't follow from the science am i right in saying that the best evidence we have at the moment is that iq correlates 0.8 by your 60s or something like that with your parents about 80 percent. is that right uh well the, the heritability so there's this weird there's this weird uh, result where the heritability uh, uh, goes up over time. Yes. So, like, environment seems to have more of an influence at the start uh, of your life, and then uh, it gets less important in in, in measuring, uh, uh, you know, the, the, its impact on intelligence. And then, yeah, it goes up to the heritability. That is the percentage of the the uh, variance in the trait that is associated with genetic differences. Yeah, it's it's 60, 70, 80 percent by the time you do it in older folks. You know, there's studies like um, the VETS, the Vietnam Experience Twin Study, where you've got all these twins who are in, they happen to be in Vietnam, and that's not the most important uh, part of it, but you've got all these twins who uh, were there and they did an IQ test and uh, uh, and so on. So um, they've got a younger IQ test and an older IQ test, um, one that they did when they, you know, when they went to Vietnam and they were like 20 years old and one that they did when they were later in life. And you can see that the heritability uh, increases over, over over time. Yeah, well, I mean, that that's fascinating. The fact that we have so much of ourselves that is a part of our parents is it's kind of something that's beautiful. But yeah, I think the the fact that Plumman said uh, it does not predetermine, but it does predispose was, was how he put it to me. Yeah, I, Robert has some of these phrases like, like that and like... Um, it makes a it uh, it makes a difference. It, it matters, but it doesn't make a difference, or something, something like that. It's just, it's yeah. Just like, well, he, the, is that so, the best way to express that? I'm not sure, but there was a tweet that I put out that I got a lot of pushback for when I first had Plowman on, and it was a right. quote from him from the episode, yeah. and he said something along the lines of. The single most important thing that you can do for your child's future happiness, educational outcomes, and income is the partner that you choose to have yeah. them with. <laughs> Yeah, it's. It, I can see why people would be upset by 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 that. But like, that's one of the things that we know will have will make a difference. Um, uh, uh, this other stuff in the environment, like interventions, are we're much less certain about. Um, you know, just you know, for instance, things like uh, breastfeeding. Does that does that improve people's intelligence? Like, that's a big big thing. Uh, does Natal that improve- nutrition. Yeah, exactly. Um, all sorts of things like that. Like we just don't know. The studies are not that good on on that. Whereas the studies are pretty reliable in knowing that you know genetics has an effect on on people's outcomes. That's a good question. There has been this big replication crisis everywhere at the moment, yeah. and it feels like studies that were often used either bro scientifically or really scientifically are being thrown out. How much has behavioral genetics been axed by this recent replication crisis? Well, um, I think behavior genetics, uh, I wrote about this in my most recent book, Science Fictions, which is about the replication crisis exactly. And um, I, uh, I think behavior genetics was one of the very first fields to be completely smashed by the replication crisis in one of its respects. So in behavior genetics, you've got lots of different, you've got lots of different types of research. So you've got research with twins, you know, do uh, the difference between, you know, uh, identical twins and fraternal twins and like inferring things from that, from that about how genetic particular traits are. So that's one thing. But then you've got the molecular stuff. And when I was a PhD student, so like 10 years ago, um, all the way through um, that, we had candidate gene research. So it was like this particular gene that we have a theory about um, is related to depression, for instance, or 
sometimes more complicated, like this gene and if you get abused as a child, it's going to relate to depression. Um, this particular gene is related to memory skills. And so it makes you smarter if you if you if you have this particular variant of, of this gene. Um, and endless research on that. Loads and loads and loads of papers published across all the top journals uh, and many of the non-top journals. Uh, millions of dollars of, of research funding, people in, built, basing their entire careers, writing their PhD dissertations, you know, um, doing job talks, getting employed at top universities on the basis of this candidate gene research. And it was all, asterisk, not all, but like 99%, nonsense. Uh, it was all unreplicable. Um, almost all unreplicable. There's like one example I can think of that uh, that didn't fail when people thought, wait a second, should we try like replicating these candidate gene results in big studies? So not just like a hundred people, but like several thousand people to see if this particular genetic variant is linked to you know variation in memory and so on. And these were big effects. Like there were there were studies published in some of the top journals that were like. 20% of the variation in people's memory abilities are explained by this one this one uh, genetic variant. Um, looking back, it seems ridiculous, but at the time, that was very much, you know, the, the, the kind of standard study that you would do. Um, it all fell to bits. Um, uh, people tried to replicate it. They couldn't find that those genes were, in fact, related to the uh, the, the disorders and the traits that were uh, uh, related to them. Um, and there was a massive replication crisis. And now we've moved on. Instead of doing these candidate gene studies, we've moved on to genome-wide association studies, which in, instead of looking at, like, one genetic variant, you look at literally hundreds of thousands of genetic variants. And it turns out that for things that are complicated, even something like height, but also, you know, things like educational attainment and so on, it's not that there's one gene that like has a big effect. It's that there's tens of thousands of, of genes that each have this little infinitesimal effect and it all builds up. So, you know, you might have a difference here and I might have a difference here. And, and there's so many, many, you know, many, many differences that we have that make me slightly taller or slightly shorter than you and, or, or, or whatever it is. Um, and uh, uh, that's now how we think about things. And, and, and in those genome-wide association studies, we are start finding like replicable evidence now. But like... Behavior genetics was was completely, you know, trashed by by the replication crisis, um, you know, in the early 2000s, kind of before we started even talking about the replication crisis in psychology, this was this was sort of happening. And, you know, the one that I can think of that that, that hasn't, you know, failed entirely is the ApoE gene, the apolipoprotein uh, E allele, which is if you've got one allele of this, I think you've got like. Uh, uh, substantially higher, like twice the risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. You've got two alleles of this, something like 10 times the risk. And that comes out every every time for Alzheimer's disease. That's like the gene that we Pretty know robust. about that is related to Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, I've got one of them. I did my 23andMe. I've got one of them, which is, you know, enjoy me while you can. Because, uh, <laughs> all might, all might, uh, all but, um, but, but, you know, we, the behavior genetics has made substantial reforms and we don't do that sort of research anymore or mostly i mean you see the odd paper coming up like i get asked to review the odd candidate gene study and like the reviews can 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 just be like this will not replicate there's bollocks. no way this will replicate it's just it has to be bought and um uh, so, yeah, as I say, the stuff we've moved on to, which is the kind of world of genome-wide association studies, polygenic scores, all that kind of stuff, is much more reliable in its basic associations. However, there's a whole bunch of other things, uh, other like concerns that are around that sort of research. So, um, and I don't mean ethical concerns and political concerns. I mean, scientific concerns. So, like, how much does assortative mating, i.e. people having kids with people who are like them, uh, uh, bias our 
uh, uh, estimates. How much does um, uh, uh, not having diverse samples mean that we're not learning enough about actual, you know, humanity in general? So, like the vast majority of this research has been done on people from a European background, uh, you know, white American people or white people from Europe, basically. Um, and so, you know, and when you try and use those polygenic scores, they don't predict as well when you look at people from other backgrounds. So we need to do, we need to do a lot more research on, 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 on that to really understand, you know, how these traits are, are made up. And, um, yeah, so there's, and there's all sorts of other, you know, statistical and technical and all sorts of other concerns, uh, with that, but we are getting more basic, you know, replications done. Whereas in the candidate gene research, we just went way ahead of, of where the science actually was and started saying, well, we found the gene for intelligence or the gene for memory, the gene for depression, all this sort of stuff. And it was completely wrong. And I think we have to constantly remember and have it at the back of our minds or maybe even the front of our minds at all times. Like for decades, for maybe a decade, we were going completely on the wrong track and and, and, and everyone was, you know, maybe not everyone. There were There were some people who were saying, well, for instance, there were some people saying, didn't Ronald Fisher, the geneticist and statistician write a paper in 1918 that said we're, we should expect really tiny effects of genes and not really big effects isn't this research kind of going against that some people did point that out at the time but nobody listened to them and we had a whole field spending endless money taxpayers money in many in many uh, cases just wasting it on statistically invalid studies so we should we, we should always remember that um, and i think even areas that are now a bit more rigorous like behavior genetics um need to need to bear that in mind um it's like the I don't know if this is ahistorical, but you know when a when a um, Roman general came back and did a triumph in in Rome, there was always like a slave standing on on the back of the chariot saying like, "Remember, you will die," you know, uh, in, in in the rear. I don't. I mean, I think that might not. Uh, no, be. I brought I brought that up about Marcus Aurelius the other day that oh, as yeah. he walked as he walked through the streets of Rome and everyone was right. hailing him as this philosopher god king and he was the this benevolent leader. He would have someone behind him the whole yeah, time that would right. say, "You are only a man." Right, precisely. So, like, I think we need to constantly have that. Like, there was a replication crisis in your field, like, just yeah. a few years ago. You know, so okay. So that's that's the genetic side of things, or the um, looking at the individual genes itself. Yeah. In terms of the behavioral genetics environment versus our, our gene side, heritability side, how robust has that been in terms of replicating? I think the you know if you look back at the twin the twin stuff uh, and the family stuff uh so you know not using not actually trying to go in and like measure dna differences but looking at family uh, uh differences that stuff is much more robust uh much more rigorous it's those studies are relatively straightforward to do in the sense that they were doing them you know early in the 20th century and and, and so on interesting potential fraud case with with one of the very famous studies on on uh, intelligence and and, uh, and and heritability um cyril burt if anyone wants to look up there's some interesting case there i'm actually i'm actually halfway through writing an article about this and, and whether you know uh cyril burt was a fraud or or, or not because there are people that have, have questions uh questioned that i think probably he was a fraud but um but anyway his results have been confirmed by subsequent research which is that yeah if you ask you know to what extent are uh, traits like intelligence related to genetic differences between people, you'll robustly get uh, uh, the answer. And then if you take a step back and just, you know, forget the genetics and ask things like, you know, is there a general factor of intelligence? Like, i.e., I, are people who are good at one type of intelligence test, you know, do they tend to be good at every type of intelligence test? That's one of the most replicable results in psychology. Like, you get that every single time. Tests correlate positively together. And yet a lot of people would be very upset to 
hear that. Unfortunately, it's funny, isn't it? It's quite it's quite ironic that people are, are upset by one of the most rigorous uh, and replicate findings. But it but it's it's because it uh, you know it's this thing I mentioned right at the start. People assume that when you say that, you must mean all this other stuff. It's like no, no. When I say that, all I mean is that 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 people who are good at one type of test tend to tend to be good at all the other ones. Are there multiple types of intelligences? Mm. Well, it depends on what you mean. So EQ is EQ a thing? Well, there's so there's a few things to say. Um, when you do an IQ test, you will notice that if you do an IQ test, whatever, you will notice that there are lots of different types of tests, right? So you'll do a memory test, a vocabulary test, a speed test, a, um, uh, all sorts of you know, spatial rotation tests, shape rotators. Everyone was talking about that on Twitter. Word cells. Um, yeah, word cells versus shape rotators. Are you a word cell or a shape I rotator? I think I might be. A, I think I'm, well, I don't know. I, if I look at like people in the physics department i definitely feel like words um, but but um but i i uh the you know those types of tests could all be described as like you know specific skills right if you look back at charles spearman in the 19 uh early 1900s 1910s who was the first person to kind of talk about general intelligence we we remember him very much for talking about general intelligence but he also talked about specific skills too so um the general factor of intelligence explains like 40 to 50 percent of the variation across all different tests like that's one that's the rigorous finding that's what comes out um but there are specific skills too so that and what that means is they can vary independently of the general intelligence i mean you know one silly extreme example just to illustrate it would be like if you sat down every single day and like memorized the dictionary every single day then your vocabulary would you know your specific skill of your vocabulary would improve whereas that's not going to help your um your you know uh shape rotation or, or or whatever and in fact there's a whole literature on on like working memory training you know like those brain training games that were quite a thing for a while uh people did research on that for a long time because they there was this initial finding published in a big journal uh, uh proceedings of the national academy of sciences that said that if you do that stuff it improves your your general ability turned out to um, be bollocks, every, didn't it? everyone was like oh my god you know we gotta gotta try and replicate this and then it didn't replicate so it felt a bit when people tried to do studies they had better controls and all that sort of stuff um but that was the idea you know that that training up one task can transfer to other ones that that seems to at least for the case of working memory that seems not to be the case um but yeah, so that's one thing to say is that there are all these different specific skills. They tend to correlate together, but they don't correlate together at like one. So they are different to some to some degree. So if you mean are there multiple intelligences in that respect, there are specific skills. That's the most obvious one. Then there's is there this thing called multiple intelligences theory that was made up by Howard Gardner at Harvard University? Um, and when I say made up, I actually you know use that word advisedly because he didn't have any data. He just decided that there were these different types of intelligence. You know, um, it's not it's not the same as verbal, auditory, kinesthetic learning, which is another thing which you know schools love. But it's that kind of thing that there are there are these multiple different types of intelligence: arithmetic, uh, arithmetical intelligence, and uh, and so on. And over the years, he's added new intelligences. So he's decided that there are new ones. There's existential intelligence now, um, interpersonal, intrapersonal intelligence, um, uh, naturalistic intelligence, which is about like how much people know about plants in the garden and stuff. And he's decided that that is an intelligence. Now, those are skills. Those are real things that we, that we, that we care about. It's in, it's cool to meet someone who knows the difference between plants, you know, when you're out in the woods or whatever, that's, that's great. But is that what we would call an intelligence in the same way that we would talk about like, you know, verbal and spatial abilities? Probably not. Um, 
does it mean that there's no such thing as the general factor of intelligence? No, because there's actually no empirical content to the to the multiple intelligences theory whatsoever. It's just one guy's opinion, um, which is remarkable. Like Harvard psychologist had a massive impact on the world and the way they think about how the human mind works, having done no research. Right? Oh, so you're saying, you're saying that there's still potential for my academic career to take <laughs> off? Then. Yeah, you don't need to do any research. Just come up with an idea that people like and they will spread it around Dude, every school. I'm brilliant at doing that. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. So uh, that's a good thing. Then you mentioned uh, emotional intelligence. EQ, eats IQ yeah. for breakfast. That's which the... is like another, which is like another thing. And my understanding of that is a few years ago, there was a meta-analysis done on all the research predicting job performance from uh, EQ, IQ, and personality, right? And what they found was if you just look at EQ on its own, it predicts job performance. People who have higher emotional intelligence do better at, at work. Right. So there you go. That correlation is there. If you just look at the bivariate correlation between those two things, totally, totally uh, uh, robust there. However, if you put intelligence and personality, like the big five personality factors, you had Christian Jarrett on the show recently talking about that sort of thing, um, into the same equation, then EQ no longer has an effect. And that's in, in predicting in predicting uh, job outcomes. And that's because. EQ is just a redescription of stuff that we already knew about, right? So, so it's just a redescription of being, you know, caring about what people's uh, feelings and emotions are, right? So that's one that's one part of it, and some of that comes across in some personality uh, uh, factors, and being smart enough to kind of operate in your mind. Okay, that person must be thinking this way. You know, uh, I can I can kind of if I say this to them, it's going to have this effect. Like it takes quite a smart person to be able to kind of. I mean. The slightly derogatory way of putting it would be like manipulate people in in in, in that way. Um, so in predicting job performance, it's just a redescription. So I can't remember which way around it is. There's the like people talk about the jingle and jangle fallacy, right? And one of them is the jingle fallacy is describing the same thing with a different name and therefore thinking it's something different. And then the jangle fallacy is calling different things the same name and thinking that they must be the same. Maybe it's the opposite way around. I can't remember uh, which way, which is jingle and which is jangle. But psychology, psychologists do an awful lot of that, like re-describing things with a new name and, and thinking it's something different. One example is grit, right? So um, there was this big book in like 20... Angela Duckworth? Yes, Angela Duckworth book. Um, 2016, something like that, that came out that was that was great. It was, man, it's in every single school in the country. Everyone loves it, like the power of persistence and passion and all that sort of stuff. If you look at the studies, like it's literally, you know, it's correlated at 0.9. On a scale of minus one to one, it's correlated at like 0.9. Conscientiousness? With conscientiousness. It's just the same thing. <laughs> I didn't, um, even, didn't even know that, and I picked yeah, it up. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. And, and, and the, you know, there's meta-analyses that have come out saying that. It really is just a redescription. So, it's not wrong. It's not that grit is a load of nonsense. And it's also not that emotional intelligence is a load of nonsense. It's just like... It's a jangle. It's just, it's just a new way of talking about something that we already knew about. And so, you know, the contribution there is... I'm not clear what the contribution is, apart from, like, you know, maybe popularizing old stuff. Uh, well, that's what I would say. I would say that given the way that pop psych works at the moment, that create a, a branding problem, a catchy branding problem is 90% of the battle. Yeah, I know well. that um, growth and fixed mindsets came under the axe. Actually, why don't we do this? Mm. Give give me some of your favorite eviscerated psychological concepts <laughs> from the replication crisis. What is, what's dying, bleeding yeah. out on the cutting room floor? <laughs> well, I mean, the classic one, I mean, 
I'm very happy to talk about growth mindsets. So we can come to that. But the classic one that kind of was there that kicked off the replication crisis in many ways was priming, like social priming, which is that there are all these things in the environment, uh, words, phrases, uh, ideas, and that when you see them, it changes the whole way that you act. So the classic study, which I remember reading as an undergrad, and I was being, I was taught it in lectures, and I remember read the study. I was like, wow, this is amazing. It was in the textbook. Incredible. People, you sit people down in a lab with a computer. Um, they're doing like some task where they have to like tell whether a sentence is a real sentence or, or, or a word is a real word. Like there's words and non-words, you know. Um, and some of the words that come up uh, in one of the conditions, you know, for half the participants, are to do with old age. So they say things like Zimmer frame or... Um, fragile uh, or frail or something. Yeah, exactly. Fragile or frail. One of the words that I remember that was used in the study was Florida, because apparently people in the US uh, associate that with old people. Fantastic. And it seems about 10 years, but that's what they, that's what they said. Um, and then what they found was that the, the and uh, you know, for the other half of the participants, it was just random words that didn't have any particular theme. And for, you know, the, the half that saw the words that are to do with old people, they walked more slowly out of the lab, right? So they, 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 when they were leaving the lab, there were like people measuring with stopwatches and they walked more slowly. That was the part of the finding. I remember reading that in the social psychology literature and going, wow, that's incredible. That's amazing to believe that. Um, and there was a whole range of studies like this um, showing people the American flag makes them much more likely to vote Republican at the next election. Even years later, you show them the American flag once and they'll vote Republican much later. People, you know, serious scientists published that in scientific journals serious science journalists wrote about that in you know whatever you know whatever magazines that they were writing about science in, and didn't think that sounds a bit that sounds a bit impossible um uh, uh another classic example which i don't think has ever been i don't think anyone's ever attempted to replicate it but it was um the, you, you go into a room and there's a box in the middle of the room like a big cardboard box and half the participants uh, sit in the box and they do like a creativity task like how many uses of a for a brick can you think of like that sort of creativity task and half the participants sit just next to the box right and what they found was that the participants who were sitting next to the box had a higher creativity score and they thought it was because they had the idea in their head activated of thinking outside the box right i mean li literally this is how uh, absurd you know some of the social psychology uh, was. I know, I know. come on that was published in psychological science one of the top journals of the field in 2012 i think um and so that idea of priming or social priming uh behavioral priming has really fallen by the wayside linguistic priming uh i think it's pretty solid so like if i say an active sentence then you're more likely to say an active sentence back rather than a passive sentence. You know that sort of that sort of thing. Like that slightly more boring stuff is 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 totally is totally real. But the kind of Darren Brown thing where you like just show someone one phrase and it totally changes their their behavior. And I think Darren Brown actually like picked up on a lot of this stuff and put it into his magic act. You know, um, I don't think he was doing priming either. I think he was doing magic tricks, which is totally fine. But like he claimed that he was doing you know this kind of putting an idea in your head sort of thing. That stuff has completely fallen by the wayside. I think that's that's but you know you don't see new studies on that kind of thing anymore, uh, very much anymore because there were some very prominent attempts to replicate that, including the one with the people walking more slowly out the lab. They actually got um, instead of people with stopwatches, who by the way knew what the hypothesis of the experiment was, um, they put laser like like infrared uh, uh, things on the corridor, like a hundred meters. Yeah, exactly. So that they would break them as they walked through, and there was no difference. Uh, when you when you do it objectively like that, there's no, there's no difference um, in the people who'd seen the old words versus not. Growth and fixed mindset. Yes. Well, there's another one, which I think the story of growth and fixed mindset is a bit different in that it's not 
complete bollocks in the sense that the, the, the priming stuff was, but it was massively overplayed. And I think um, the, over, the, 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 the real, um, you know, if you look at the original discussions of growth mindset, early 2000s, uh, maybe late 90s, early 2000s, this, was, this is going to change your life. Change the way you talk to your partner. Change the way you your kids do at school. Change the way you think about your life. It's going to be massive. It's going to have an enormous effect. They published a paper in Science, so like what's meant to be the second best journal in the world, saying that growth mindset could solve the uh, Israel-Palestine peace process. Like I'm not kidding. That's a paper that exists in published in Science, and it's all like very borderline statistic results, statistical results, and all that sort of stuff. I actually. Having now remembered that, I feel like I should go back and do a little um, do a little debunking of that because I've not seen uh, any, anyone talk about that. But um, and, you know, and, and and over time, what you now find is that the people who are doing research on growth mindset claim things like growth mindset is a cheap intervention that can have a, a, a small to modest effect on kids' uh, educational attainment. That is, if you go into classrooms, you teach kids. Um, working hard is good. You can change the way that you, uh, you know, you can change your level of ability. You can change your skills. You know, uh, then that that does seem to have a, a, a small effect on on kids' behavior, as as I think I would predict it would, right? It, like that makes sense. If you tell kids you're completely stuck, there's nothing you can do, then you know I can totally imagine that many of them will, uh, uh, um, you know, will will take that to heart and and uh, and it'll at least have a small effect on. There seem to be slightly bigger effects on kids who are from very low income backgrounds, for instance. So that's that makes that makes sense too. So like now the now the claims they used to be these absolutely dramatic claims about how it would change your life. Now it's like this should be part of the toolkit in education, and that's good. And that's because people have come along and done meta analyses of all the research and found that the effects are are really really small on average. Like the effects are are not earth earth shattering effects. They're like just about there sort of thing, um, and. And that's much better. But I haven't seen anyone say, oh, sorry, we misled the entire world for decades about about, you know, how much of an effect these things will have. I feel like this kind of thing might be being used in a few schools now if they had talked about it on the level all the way through. But it's now in, it's in every school in, in, in the country because the claims being made for it were, were revolutionary when, in fact, the data just didn't back that up at all. I had David Robson on to talk about the expectation effect. Have you seen that? Mm. Uh, I, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of the, the, the sort of effect, but I don't know. Is, is there is that a book or? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he wrote a book, Science Writer. Very good. Really, mm. really good. And I would highly recommend you go and check it out. Mm. Uh, and so he's talking about basically the placebo effect, but across multiple different sorts of domains, right? Mm. The expectation that you have about your outcomes can very heavily influence the outcomes. My two favorite studies from that, one of them was talking about um, gluten intolerance has 10x from 3% to 30% over the last 20 years. Mm. Uh, so they brought people into a, a, a food hall and they put them under study settings. Some people did and did not have self-reported gluten intolerances. Yeah. They told everyone that they were going to give them a meal which had gluten in, had no gluten in. Right. <laughs> people were breaking out in hives, running to the toilet with <laughs> diarrhea. They had inflammation, all of this stuff. The other one was a study about VO2 max tests. It turns out that um, a particular type of genetic variation allows you to blow off CO2 and upregulate oxygen more efficiently. People were brought in. They were split randomly into two groups that were mixed with do and do not have the genetic variant. Mm-hmm. One group was told you do. One group was told you don't. You should do really well. You should do really badly. Surprise, surprise, the group that was told that they should do badly did worse overall however what they found was that people in the group that were told they would do worse but did have the correct 
a, a genetic variant to <laughs> right. blow off CO2 didn't do as well as the people that didn't have the genetic variation but were told that they should. And David's <laughs> synopsis for this was, your expectations are more powerful than your genes. Now right. he's doing it as a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek sort of play. My point being, you have the opportunity with the expectation effect to create a, a placebo sense of what may be the outcome. Is that justified in jazzing up some mm-hmm. sort of effect? And is there maybe an argument to be made that the more sexy that you make it, the more outlandish that you make it sounding, it does end up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. You do end up getting people who believe in uh, ego depletion. I'm sure that you've seen this. People that believe that willpower is a limited resource have yeah. limited willpower. Yeah. People that don't believe that that's the case seem not to. I'm not sure how replicable that is. Well, but... I think yeah, I think there's been some controversy over that replication. But yeah, no, I, I get the I get the, the 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 idea. Is there a justification for people jazzing up <laughs> any kind of psychological? Yeah. A tool that you may be able to use because by doing that you increase the expectation effect which yeah. does genuinely increase the effect the well, only issue is that it's not happening on the mechanism that it's claimed on yeah i mean well it's not just psychological stuff i mean if you look at like the whole term of bedside manner that doctors use it, you know it, doctors can have a, a big effect on how their patients do by just being nice to them or, or or acting in a way that acting in a way that um that's not like you know really harsh or 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 accusatory or whatever um i think any doctor will tell you that, that, that that's the case however i think we really like the the most important thing as scientists that we that we have now, you know, when you're doing an intervention in a school and you're a teacher i think jazzing it up whatever you know c- carry on if, if it helps that's completely fine but as scientists, our number one thing is to try and get to the truth. And, uh, and you know, we need to complete, like, control as rigorously as possible for these kind of effects. And that's really hard in a behavioral context. It's really hard to make the control group feel like they're doing something similar to the, the, um, the kind of active treatment group. It's really, really difficult. Um, they're maybe not having exactly the same kind of intervention. They're, if, it, if, if it's one of those video game studies that I mentioned before, there may be, you know, there were loads of studies published where the control group was just people who didn't do anything uh, versus people who were playing the video game. And what you want is someone to be playing like a different video game, which you don't think has the active ingredient of like the brain training or whatever it is. Um, but that's hard. And um, it's so hard that when you look across studies, you find that tons and tons and tons of studies, even, you know, randomized medical uh, trials don't really have very good controls um whether it's like a placebo pill or whether it's just you know um uh, tr- treatment as usual or whatever um people don't put as much effort as they should into these controls and i think i think um uh, you're absolutely right that there are these there are these big expectation effects you've got it you've got to try your best to roll them out because it's a big source of bias in these in these kind of studies i'm just reading a a, a meta-analysis on homeopathy right now that claims homeopathy helps people's uh, ADHD. I'm just writing a, a, a blog about it, which is a very interesting case of a meta-analysis, by the way, which does everything right. It was pre-registered. It had a bias check. It had a publication bias check. It did like it was all everything was all done, you know, uh, uh, by the book. And yet, obviously, it's bollocks anyway because it's homeopathy. So, so it, so it, it like the. <laughs> You can follow all the rules and still and still have and 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 still uh, not have um, a, a realistic result. But one of those rules that people need to follow a lot more. And when people look at the quality of trials, medical trials over the years, they they do find that um, the quality has been increasing somewhat. You know, since the you know latter half of the twentieth century, 
people are getting better at doing controls. People are getting better at blinding. People are getting better at doing randomized uh, uh, studies now. So, like, if you look at a randomized controlled trial now, on average, it will be better than a randomized controlled trial from, like, you know, the 1980s or even 1990s, a little bit on average. That's that's what the that's what the best data uh, shows, as far as I'm aware. But um, but yeah, these expectation effects still come up in, you know, in loads of different in loads oh, of different trials. I, so I've just realised my question was: Should we not be telling the public something which can benefit them by using the expectation effect to fill in gaps in the magnitude of something that's maybe quite small? What mm. you're saying is that science needs to protect itself from this by using unbelievably quarantine, quarantined uh, yeah. um, controls, making sure that this doesn't impact because the expectation effect can be such a big deal. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this in that case, it works in both directions. You can yeah. influence publicly what people think. All right, what the other one that I saw, which I haven't spoken to anybody about yet, and you're the guy, what happened with the recent SSRI mm. and depression stuff? Because that demonstrates i think quite nicely how important it is to get this right because you're potentially going to commit tens of millions hundreds of millions of people perhaps Mm -hmm. over several decades to a particular course of treatment that may be based on something that isn't legit have you looked at this yeah um it's funny because it relates back to the homeopathy thing that i just mentioned because in that homeopathy meta-analysis they say well look we know that there can't be any actual you know molecules of the substance left in the homeopathic remedy because it's been diluted so many times that there there aren't any molecules of of whatever you know uh, uh, active ingredient left but the randomized controlled trials show that there is overall an effect and therefore we don't need to know the mechanism we just know it has an effect right and 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 i think that they are wrong about that but the, the, it was interesting that they said that because under most circumstances i would actually that argument sounds quite good to me just not in the case of homeopathy, which obviously is 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 literally impossible for it to be having an effect, um, given the laws of physics as we as we as we know them. But the SSRI thing is interesting because they're making a similar argument there. They're saying so. This paper that came out recently from um, I think it was University College London um, said when we look at you know the, so the theory underlying SSRI antidepressants is that they they allow you know for differences in the amount of serotonin that people have in their brains, and that might affect their uh, their, um, their their depression levels. They mean that there's more serotonin just going around in there. And it was always a bit of a vague theory. And I think most researchers would say that the kind of chemical imbalance theory uh, is it's a very, very high level, like, it's a thing that, that maybe doctors will say to their patients, but it's not actually that justified by the science. And indeed, this study kind of confirmed that, which is that there's no obvious differences in the amount of serotonin in the brain of people who are depressed versus people who aren't. Um, now, uh, uh, if you think back to the homeopathy thing, then it's like, well, OK, the mechanism isn't there. The, the, maybe the mechanism that we think, uh, 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 you know, has an effect isn't there. But if you look at you know, SSRIs, they're not like homeopathy in that, like, they have big side effects. People who have SSRIs have a, a huge range of different side effects. So there is something active going on uh, uh, in, in, in in there. And it could be that they're having an effect, even if not via the serotonin. So if you look at the studies on antidepressants, um, my friend Saloni Datani did a great uh, series on, um, you know, the website Our World in Data. Oh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. You've probably like everyone's seen the graphs from that website and stuff. But if they they publish a a whole lot more interesting stuff, she did a whole series on 
uh, antidepressants and the research. And her overall conclusion was, and this is broadly my conclusion as well when I looked at literature, is yes, the effects are exaggerated in the literature. So um, if you look at the way that antidepressant studies are published, um, there was actually a, a really terrifying study done on uh, on antidepressants. Uh, I think this applies to almost all areas of science, which is they took uh, registered trials. So when you do a medical trial, you've got to register it with the government, right? And that's just a kind of, you know, legally you have to do it. Otherwise, there's no way you'll ever get it published. So there's registries and they have like all the trials that have ever been done on, on, on them. And in this particular selection of trials, they found that it was about 50-50. So about half of the trials in the antidepressant didn't work and half the trials it did. But by the time it got to the studies that actually got published in papers, almost all of the negative studies, just no one ever sent them for publication. Uh, but almost all of the positive studies, people did send for publication. And then if you look at those uh, the, 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 the few negative studies that actually got published, they kind of shifted the outcome a little bit. They said, well, we were going to measure things on this depression measure, but actually uh, we didn't find a result on that. So we'll, we'll just we'll, we'll talk about a different depression measure, which we did find a result on. So this like, you know, dredging through the data to find any old thing. Then if you look even closer, you find that even some of the negative ones were kind of written up in a slightly spin sort of way, like a positive sort of way saying like, well, this is very promising. And all this sort of stuff, when actually it was just a null trial. And so the literature that we see at the end of the kind of this kind of process, and it's almost like a like a laundering process of, 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 of the literature, doesn't bear much relation to the studies that actually were done, which is really scary. And I think that happens across all areas. They actually found in that same paper that it applies to therapy trials as well, not just antidepressant trials. So, I mean, that is like a really, really terrifying uh, discovery. Having said that, I still think that if you adjust for that kind of thing, the publication bias and so on, it is the case that antidepressants do seem to have a, a, a very, you know, like a, like a small effect on on people's levels of, of, of depression. I don't think the mechanism matters in that case. I think um, uh, even if it's not to do with serotonin, they, they seem to be doing something and the randomized controlled trials do do seem to show that. But then there's like massive interpretational differences in um, in, in how you look at the numbers. So uh, Irving Kirsch, the famous critic of um, antidepressants, published a book called The Emperor's New Drugs, I think it's called, uh, about antidepressants. And he said an effect size of 0.2 uh, is the average that you get out of uh, uh, studies of antidepressants. So like 0.2 standard deviation difference in the depression score. What a tiny, pathetic effect. You've got to give up these drugs. They don't have an, they don't have an effect. That's, that's not going to you know, work at all. You look at the the you know most recent meta-analyses that are published that account for things like I was talking about the publication bias, and they say effect size of 0.2, effective medical treatment. This is really good. You you know uh, even though it's not a massive effect, it's still going to have a big impact across the population and all sorts of stuff. So people can look at exactly the same uh, uh, data and draw massively different interpretations. My interpretation is we've got to do a bit better on this. We've we, like. We've got to do proper research and really understand uh, this and, and get better at treating depression, both from the therapy angle and the, the, the drug angle. Um, but at the moment, it does look like on average for, for each person who uses them, like one type of, of antidepressant will, will uh, have some kind of mild effect, at least on their on their depression. Now, I think one of the big things that hampers depression research is that we're not very good at defining what depression actually is. Um, so there's loads of research on whether, you know, so we've, we've already talked about, there's this thing called intelligence, right? Um, and intelligence doesn't 
exist in the sense that there's not like a thing we can measure with a ruler in the brain or anything like that that is intelligence. We infer the existence of intelligence from the fact that there are all these different tests that you give people and they correlate positively together. And there's this thing that comes out, this latent variable that comes out and it's called intelligence that explains, you know, half the variation in the tests and all that sort of stuff. And so the question is, you know, is there something called depression? That's the same. That's the same thing that we can infer from all the symptoms. Insomnia, low mood, just crying sometimes for no reason. Uh, you know, all the, all the different things that come with with depression. Is there this thing called depression? And the argument from quite a lot of uh, people, uh, Iko Freed is one who's a, 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 a um, someone that I've um, uh, known on, on, for a long time, uh, a researcher who's done really good research on this. His idea, his his idea is that there isn't necessarily this thing called depression, and what we should be focusing on is the symptoms. We should be focusing on this kind of network of symptoms which sometimes bump into each other and cause each other. So like the insomnia causes low mood and the low mood causes you to be angry at your spouse and that causes you to, and, and so there's all this kind of like network and you can try, there's various statistical approaches you can try to understand this kind of network of effects. And that's a different way of looking at things than saying that there is this thing called depression that causes all the symptoms. Um, uh, this latent variable, which we'll never be able to measure, that's, that, that causes all the symptoms. I'm kind of undecided on this debate. I think um, uh, it, it seems quite a quite a strong thing to say that there's no such thing as depression because, like, a lot of people seem to have very similar symptoms over over time. And um, the general medical approach is to try and treat the underlying cause rather than the symptoms. And and so this would be quite a uh, this would be quite a departure from that. But I think the 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 um, there's a lot of mileage in this kind of research of like examining the symptoms rather than saying, um, you know, there's this one thing which we ha we have to try and treat. So um, you know, that might be one of the reasons why the trials on antidepressants are are kind of all over the place is that they all measure depression slightly differently. Mm. People experience depression slightly differently. Uh, people are at different phases of depression and, and the symptoms might be different. And if one symptom causes another, then in, in different ways in different people. So it, it becomes like a, like a moving target rather than, you know, I don't know if you were doing a drug of, if you're doing a, a, a test of like, do you have the COVID virus in your system which is you know yes there's difficulties in in some ways of measuring that but like it's a much more objective thing than you know are you depressed i mean there's many different ways you can you can answer that question that seems very much like a behavioral geneticist's answer i spoke to plowman about a year ago and he was telling me he says he has a uh predisposition for being fat uh, mm. and he said uh, it was such a great example and it really helped to identify how this collection of genes contributes to the outcomes that we get in life. So he said that whenever he walks past a bakery, if he smells fresh bread, he will be going in and he will be buying it and he will <laughs> yeah. be eating most of it. But yeah. there are many ways to get fat. You may be fat because you have an aversion to exercise. You may be fat because you have downregulated ghrelin release so that the hormone that tells your stomach that it's empty that mm. signals to you to eat maybe that's upregulated or some you know there's a million different ways that you could do that or yeah. for you to be fit maybe you don't sleep so much so you're always up early and because you're up early it means that you go and exercise because you've got nothing right. else to do right there are tons and tons and tons of different things and the same thing goes for what you're talking about here what you talk about when you're referring to depression is a particular milieu of a bunch of different things that people seem to link together yeah. Where do they come from? Is everyone's depression the same? You're never going to actually get to experience somebody else's brain. So you use these words to describe, but we all know how uh, 
culturally influenced a lot of the things that we consider sure. are right we use the language that other people have done it's precisely why juries aren't allowed to or told not to watch the news while they're doing yeah, yeah. for precisely that reason to not yeah. try and influence their opinion so it, it does make a, a good bit of sense i also think is it what's it called the richmond scale of depression and it's not to 61 or something like that or the richard scale there's I think- a lot there's the beck depression inventory and the, there's a whole there's a whole like Litany of tests you can use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and I'm I'm pretty sure that no matter what the mechanism is that SSRIs could be working on, it seems like they get to move someone about a point on one of the scales that I seem to remember lo- reading about. Yeah, and you go, well, a point isn't nothing, but it's a big difference if it's the one between taking your life and staying alive. Sure. So saying that there is no use for them, that seems like baby and bathwater being thrown out. But saying that it's this effect, but then also going, well, serotonin does seem to impact people's subjective sense of well-being and how they actually so if it is like it's a it's a mess it's a mess and a huge amount of that mess comes from low quality research like low quality studies low quality uh, antidepressant trials low quality research on depression more generally people not thinking about alternate explanations of the 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 data and kind of getting stuck in in particular paths and i think this is a broad problem across all uh, uh research but yeah you're completely right that um uh, uh this is this 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 becomes like a real like thicket of 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 uh of, of, of complication however I, I do i feel uncomfortable going too far down that particular line because like for many years uh anti the anti-psychiatry movement has made like these similar arguments and i feel, i feel like an aversion to saying well maybe they were kind of right in some in some <laughs> in some respects because you know they are they are uh I mean, I was about to say they are insane. I mean, the, 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 that maybe that's not an insult to them because they don't think there's such a thing. But, um, you know, I, I live, um, uh, I, so I, I work um, at the, the, the Maudsley Hospital in, uh, in, um, in, uh, in London, which is a, a psychiatric hospital. Our, our campus is like behind the, 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 the psychiatric hospital. And, you know, every so often there's Scientologists out there uh, uh, protesting because they have this big anti-psychiatry thing. So they're really worried about... What's the um, problem with psychiatry? Well, L. Ron Hubbard didn't like it. Um, I think possibly because he saw a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist said, "You need help," and so he was. And so he was. Uh, oh, wow. uh, now, downstream from that, the echoes oh, of L. Ron Hubbard's bad interaction with a psychiatrist are still. That's my understanding. That's my understanding. Wow. And, I, and I think, and I think, uh, you know, they are trained from day one that like psychiatry is the evil thing, and psychiatrists are out to um, to to manipulate us, control us, uh, and shock our brains. Imagine that. Yeah, to manipulate and control us. But um, but um, uh, yeah, particularly psychiatrists. It's very very strange. But um, they were particularly they were they were uh campaigning about electroshock treatment, which is another like interesting thing. Which like my understanding is, if you talk to psychiatrists, um, that for very 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 severe cases of depression, where people are like literally catatonic and can't move from from depression electroshock uh, electroconvulsive therapy i think they call it um does does help it can kind of jolt people out of these kind of catatonic states however um we don't really know that much about it and certainly the long-term effects uh, it's it's on un, it's unclear i saw a meta-analysis that looked a bit um a bit shaky in terms of its uh, statistics i'm going to write something on this uh, soon those scientologists have like inspired me to like uh, look into this but um what i don't think it is is like a, a terrifying cabal of psychiatrists who are trying to control the world. I think it's. I think it's like it, it's been observed anecdotally, at least in many cases, that this helps, and so and so uh, uh, people people use it. But yeah, 
you know, there's, there was a whole, you know, through the 1970s, 80s, this whole movement of, you know, there's no such thing as schizophrenia. It's just a bad ad- adaptation to the societal conditions that people uh, get get uh, mm. get put in. No, no, there's this thing called schizophrenia. It's really bad, like psychosis at least. There's this thing, and it's really, really bad, and people lose uh, complete control of uh, their grip on reality. Um, and 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 that's a really serious thing. And it's not to do with society. It's something you know very that's gone very very wrong in their brains. And 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 that's another thing that we don't know how to treat that well. I mean, we've got drugs, antipsychotics that can can kind of hold it hold it back, but it's difficult to know how to sort of prevent or predict it. Kind of like the broken clock is right twice a day scenario. It seems like if you have a replication crisis and a lot of studies and previously held models are up for the chopping block there will be some people in the past that decided yeah. to point yeah. at that. And yeah. that that ends up making them seem like Cassandra's, right? Yeah. Very effective ones. Yeah. So given, given the fact that you've got this thicket, as you put it, which is a complete mess, even for people who, like you, can read scientific papers, who, like you, understand how effect sizes and p-hacking and all of this stuff can be done, and coming out the back of two years where everybody had to be a closet epidemiologist virologist and understand you've got uh the media perverse incentives clickbait you've got academic issues with regards to the only stuff that gets published is the stuff that is set all of this stuff all put together first off it's not a surprise that people are losing faith in the powers that be in the ones that they should have done the bigger question i think is how people can be effectively skeptical without losing faith in everything and becoming confused and nihilistic and easy to manipulate. I've just written uh, the start of a book proposal on exactly that question of like, how do you question the consensus without like losing your mind and becoming a conspiracy theorist? And uh, uh, I, I, I think this is a really difficult task because the the incentives are so strong once you see that you know the scientific establishment is really screwed up uh, on something like the replication crisis or you know it, you mentioned you know during the pandemic there were all those cases of studies that came out that were fraudulent uh, papers having to be retracted from the lancet because they were they were based on entirely fraudulent data like there was a study on hydroxychloroquine that had to be retracted and the lancet were like well, from now on, we're going to this. Literally, this is what happened. They said, from now on, we're going to make sure that at least one of the reviewers uh, of the paper, one of the peer reviewers, has expertise in the topic uh, uh, that they're reviewing. It's like, whoa, wait. <laughs> you didn't do that before. So, so you know, I, I can, t- I like, I can, I understand why some people are like, holy shit. But I think part of it is that we need to raise our standards in general. Like, um, we need to first of all, we need to have some standards rather than just accepting stuff that someone on our side says, uh, which is. A massive temptation for all of us. There's someone we trust. They said something, so we're like, "Oh yeah, I'm sure that's I'm sure that's true." Um, and that's kind of my argument in in the previous book in science fiction is that like if you raise your standards, then you won't become a homeopath or a conspiracy theorist or whatever because because the the, the standards that you have are you know will will just kind of you know all that stuff will get chucked out as well. It's just that you'll also chuck out lots of really crap, you know, mainstream science too. Um, uh, so I think there's probably like a good checklist that can be written for like how you should read papers. And I, I, I kind of sketch one of them out in the, in the previous book, but I think I'm going to do a book length treatment of that, like what to look at when you're reading the scientific evidence. Um, 
But even then, like you can't be an expert in every single area. And it takes it takes uh, expertise in, in, in each area. So I think what we can do is encourage like a, a free and open and and to be honest, as aggressive as possible debate on 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 scientific research. So there's like there's organizations out there like the Science Media Center, for instance. And I would encourage anyone if they see like a controversial paper in the news um, take a look at the Science Media Center website, because what they do is they ask a whole bunch of scientists um, who are unaffiliated with the study itself, what they think about it. And so you'll get, you know, six or seven responses. And sometimes they say, this study seems perfectly good. But regularly, they say, this has been way overhyped. There's a major problem with this study. You know, what would be an amazing website would be Rotten Tomatoes, but for <laughs> science studies. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's already a website called, um, called Pub Peer. So, um, like publication peer or whatever pub pub peer which which tries to do that exact thing um so they've got a little bot that goes through twitter and finds like threads that people write about papers and post them under a link to that paper on on the website so if you again another thing which people might be interested in doing is if you find a paper that looks dodgy in some respect put it into pub peer and see if there's any discussion and that's that's pretty much what you're talking about the only problem is there's so many papers out there uh, and you know, nobody has the time to, to kind of uh, look into them all. And there's probably not discussion on every single paper that you want there to be discussion on. But another thing they do on PubPeer is look for fraud. So they'll say, do you think that the microscope picture in figure three looks like it's been photoshopped? And it turns out that in many cases it has. Uh, there's this incredible, um, she calls herself scientific integrity consultant called Elizabeth Bick, who goes through thousands of biological papers and finds that scientists you know they don't just manipulate data when they do fraud but they manipulate the pictures as well whether it's like blots or microscope images all that sort of stuff so many of them have been like duplicated retouched recolored cropped all that sort of stuff to show the results in a much better light and that's scientific fraud but it happens in thousands of papers every year and peer reviewers look at it and go nope looks fine to me and it gets passed on and so this whole community has to come out and and, and re-review the papers and I think encouraging that sort of thing, exactly as you say, websites that do this kind of thing, that, that, that collect together reviews of papers, collect together people's opinions. Another thing scientific journals can do, uh, and some of them are doing this now, including some of the top ones like Nature, they're publishing the peer reviews alongside the paper. So you can see what people thought of it when they first saw it. And it's and, and, and in some cases, including a case I saw recently of a, a, a big you know, this genetics paper that claimed to like revolutionize genetics when in fact, it, uh, I would say it didn't at all. Like you can see that the reviewer said, no, 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 there's a big problem here. The control condition is, doesn't work. And the editor just was like, well, better publish this anyway. And, and just com like completely ignored what the reviewer said. So, so, but, but we can see that that's obvious now. We wouldn't have been able to see that back, back before they published reviews, science was just done in a complete black box. So there's this movement towards open science that is publishing the peer reviews online publishing the data set online so anyone can can go in and dig into it and have a look um making sure that the paper is open access so anyone even if they don't work at a university and they don't want to pay for the paper can can click it and read it um making sure that the materials are online so other scientists can come along and replicate it in exactly the same way a big problem is that scientists read each other's papers and they don't even know where to begin to 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 start replicating uh the paper because they they're like Oh, uh, there's there's actually there's no description here of, of what they did in this particular condition. So I'm going to have to spend months emailing back and forth with the scientists. Like, what is the point of scientific papers if they don't actually describe um, what what you what the you know what was done in the experiment? Well, it turns out in in many many cases they don't. So 
um, yeah, there's this the, the, there's this movement of o- open science. I think one sort of like rule people could have in their heads is like if a paper looks like it's open and transparent, they've published their data online, everything's open and clear, they've registered their plan. Like before they touch the data, they've actually like registered the plan of what they're going to do with it, so they don't like fuck about with it when they when they when they get the data and like oh. Well, I'm sure that participant wasn't paying attention or that person, let's cut out everyone above 50, even though that wasn't the plan. But let, let's cut out everyone who's above 50, because I think probably older people will have a different reaction to this drug. Uh, this sort of thing happens all the time. And you can kind of justify it to yourself. Like, yeah, yeah, it is the case that older people have a different reaction to this drug. So let's just cut them out altogether. Oh, lo and behold, we found a significant result. Let's send that off for publication. Like, And it wasn't that case. It wasn't That wasn't the case before they did this. So having a clear plan and sticking to it. Uh, posting your data online, probably most frauds are not going to post their data online because they're scared that there'll be some like obvious thing in the data, like the number seven comes up too often or something. Like like and they and they like so it doesn't seem like a real uh, data set. Um, those are kind of things that you can look for. But I also think seeking out other scientists' opinions uh, and and something like the Science Media Center is really useful for that. But also just like looking on Twitter and seeing what people have said about a paper. Like okay, you'll get lots of uninformed takes on the paper as well but you know seeing what people said you don't necessarily have to agree with it or have to take it as gospel but you know seeing that okay actually maybe tweets one to five of this thread are kind of like are, are garbage but tweet seven actually does illustrate that there's a problem in table three of this paper so i better just just you know adjust my certainty about it somewhat so like there's that that sort of thing and you know that's what i'm doing when i'm like writing about low quality papers I'll read the paper and have my own critique of it, but I'll also see what other people have said uh, about it. Because the whole point of having a scientific community is that we all like criticize each other all the time. And one of the big problems is that we've got to the point where it can be very socially awkward to criticize each other. Um, some fields, this is much better than others. In psychology, um, as much as I enjoy going to like psychology lectures and so on, everyone is generally quite nice to each other. And they're like, oh, that's a great paper. Well done. They start off, like my friend Chris Chabri pointed this out recently, like, Often the person who's chairing a a, a, a a seminar will start the question and answer session by saying, that was a brilliant talk. Thank you so much for that. That sets the wrong tone because the tone you actually want is, okay, th- thanks for giving us the talk. Does anyone want to critique that? You know, And, and in, in economics, I've, done, I've only done this once. In economics, I went to an economics uh, seminar thing and I was told I was doing a talk but I wasn't talking about my own stuff. I was to talk. I was given someone else's data set who had been that was presented earlier that day, and I was told to just like check it, critique it, and do my own like mini talk at the end of his talk that was critiquing it. That's the sort of thing we want. Now, economics seminars can get a bit like macho, aggressive, like that sort of thing, and that's you know can 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 distract from the the actual content, which is what we want. But that sort of level of like constant skepticism, constant argument. It's what science is all about. And I think we lose that if people are basically too nice and too trusting of each other. And those are like being nice and being trusting. They're good things that we want to encourage. But maybe not so much in science. Stuart Ritchie, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to find out the stuff that you do online, where should they go? I'm on uh, Stuart J. Ritchie on Twitter. I'm also stuartritchie.substack.com uh, for all my uh, uh, longer writings. And my book is uh, Science Fictions came out a couple of years ago. Amazing. Stuart, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks. 
Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget that you might be listening but not subscribed, and that means that you're going to miss episodes when they are uploaded, and that would be Trez Bad. So go to Spotify and press the follow button in the middle of the page, or there is a plus button in the top right-hand corner on Apple Podcasts. I thank you very much. Also, don't forget there is an 83% discount, three months free, and a 30-day money-back guarantee available from Surfshark by going to surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom. You can get a 15% discount on Crafted London's jewellery at bit.ly slash cdwisdom and mw15 at checkout. And you can get a 15% discount on all of Verso's products by going to ver.so slash modernwisdom and the code mw15 at checkout. I'll see you next time.